glad to uh, have you with us today. I'm happy to announce that this morning, after the last two weeks of dealing with euthanasia and abortion, we get to the light topic of adultery. So this is going to be a fun one. Um, so I will actually warn you up front that today is going to be a little squirmy. Um, one time I took my mom to see Borat. <clears throat> This might feel like that for you. Um, so we are going to be talking about sex, pretty frankly, and we're going to deal with some heavy issues. So if you got kiddos in here today, um, it, it may be a day you want to send them out to Antioch kids, but your call. So um, speaking of kids, I had the privilege this week of having the talk with my nine-year-old son. And uh, he had started asking some questions uh, really through the lens of science about how DNA gets transmitted and that sort of thing, but figured it was the time. And so uh, Mo and I had some good conversations the last few days. I'll spare you the details, but um, all that to say, he thought it was hilarious. And, uh, <laughs> and it kind of is if you think about it. So uh, how many of you guys remember the first time uh, you heard about sex? Okay, so a lot of hands. Uh, but a lot of hands that didn't go up, so this is your first time, which <laughs> puts me in a really difficult spot here. Um, I was assuming a different audience. Um, so when a mommy and a daddy love each other very much, uh, oh, geez, here we go. I, I just, you know, I wrote and rewrote this sermon about four times this week, and I don't know if this was the best one that came out, but it was the most recent, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll just go with it. Um, but it is interesting when it comes to kids, and we do know that really early on in life, we start to formulate ideas about love and sex and relationships and marriage and that sort of thing. And so I came across an article this week uh, where they interviewed a bunch of little kids about some of these topics, and I've got to share a couple of the answers with you because it's so great. The question is, when's it okay to kiss someone? <clears throat> and Kurt says, the law says you have to be 18 so I wouldn't want to mess with that. <laughs> uh, Jenny, age eight, says, if you kiss someone, then you should marry them and have kids with them. It's the right thing to do. <laughs> Pam, age seven, says, when they're rich. <clears throat> uh, the next question, the great debate, is it better to be single or married? And Theodore, age eight, says, I don't know which is better, but I'll tell you one thing, I'm never gonna have sex with my wife. I don't want to be all grossed out and stuff. <laughs> And Kristen, age 10, says, single is better because I, would, I don't want to do any, I don't want to change no diapers. Of course, if I did get married, I'd figure something out. I'd just call up my mom and have her come over for some coffee and diaper changing. <laughs> that actually works. And uh, then finally, how do you make a marriage work? And Ricky, age 7, says, tell your wife that she looks pretty even if she looks like a truck. <laughs> So he's going to do well, I think. <clears throat> uh, it is a confusing thing as a kid, and especially for those of us that grew up uh, maybe within the church or within the Christian faith, the messages that we received um, in youth group or whatever often said something like this, that sex is dirty, gross, and bad, so save it for the one you love. <laughs> which is really confusing, isn't it? <clears throat> um, 
But that's not actually how the Bible talks about sex, as something that's gross or dirty or forbidden. The biblical vision of sex is something that's really beautiful. And all the way from the very beginning of the story in Genesis 2, when God creates the man and the woman and essentially initiates this covenant relationship of marriage and invites them to be fruitful and multiply, the scriptures have a really high view of sex. Um, one of my favorite verses in the book of Solomon, Proverbs, or in the book of uh, Proverbs, <clears throat> Solomon writes in, in Proverbs 5, may, the fount- may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you be ever intoxicated with her love. Right? You find this language all throughout the scriptures that sex is designed by God not just as a practical, functional means of procreation, but as a source of joy, something that would cause us to rejoice. It's something that's supposed to be fun and meaningful and deeply pleasurable. So when Solomon asks, may her breasts satisfy you always, yes, they may. This is my life verse. So... <laughs> So, sex isn't everything, but it is a good thing. And of course, like every good thing that God has made, humans have found all different ways to take this good thing called sex and to misuse it, to pervert it, to abuse it, to distort it from its original design. And so, therefore, I know that for many of us, sex is a difficult topic, a painful topic or even shameful subject. Uh, For me personally, as somebody who experienced some sexual abuse as a child, sex isn't always an easy thing uh, to talk about. And so I want to be sensitive to that today, understanding that for many in this room, marriage, sex, relationships, adultery are really hard topics for us, based either on our family of origin or on the things that we have done or that have been done to us. So, in Exodus chapter 20, as we come to this seventh command, on one hand, do not commit adultery is fairly straightforward in verse 14. Um, God is essentially inviting his people to a life of freedom in him as his covenant community, preparing them as they, enter into, as they prepare to enter into the promised land, and he's laying out a vision of worship and ethics that are designed uh, to increase their joy and their flourishing as God's people. And so on one hand, when he simply says in what's English five words, do not commit adultery, it's a pretty straightforward command, meaning don't have sex with somebody you're not married to, okay? If you're thinking about doing that, don't. If you're currently doing that, stop, right? So I don't want to take a command that's fairly straightforward and make it more complicated than it has to be. It's just five words. And if you want to experience the fullness of life in the kingdom of God, then don't have sex with someone you're not married to. So you don't need to pray about it. You don't need to seek wise counsel. You don't need to do an in-depth Bible study and learn how to say adultery in Greek, right? This is a command that God has given for his glory and for our good here. God is pretty clear. So the reality is that sin, rejection of God's law, comes at a price, but it always hides the price tag. And many of us, unfortunately, know this firsthand. 
So on one hand, it is really simple, and it really is straightforward, and God says, this is the sex ethic that I am inviting my people to participate in for my glory and for their good. On the other hand, we know it's much more complex than that, that it's a huge topic, it's a huge part of our lives, it's a huge part of the world that we live in, and so we would do well to spend a little bit of time this morning asking why it is that God cares who his people sleep with. So I want to start by submitting to you that, yes, sex is a good thing that God created to be pleasurable and enjoyable for humans, but that is not its ultimate purpose or design. That God's had something much bigger in mind when he wired us as sexual beings and created the covenant relationship of marriage and invited his people to be co-creators with him and bearing his image and filling the world with the knowledge of his glory. I came across a video recently put out by the Children's Television Workshop that defines sex for children uh, as something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. And that's it. No mention of marriage, no mention of family, or commitment, or even love. No hint that sex has any greater purpose than just physical gratification. But sex isn't just about our pleasure, it is about God's glory. And so the question I want to ask this morning is how does a biblical sex ethic reveal who God is and what God is like? How does a biblical sex ethic reveal who God is and what God is like? I have a good friend by the name of Josh Butler. He'll be here in two or three weeks uh, to share with us. He's a pastor down in Phoenix, Arizona, and he recently gave a lecture on the beauty of the Christian sexual ethic. And I'm going to borrow a little bit from his work this morning because I found it incredibly helpful in navigating some of these challenging issues and cultural questions we have. And so Josh proposes that one of the ways that God... uh, intends us to view sex is as an icon, an icon. And so throughout history, many, uh, many committed Christians have found that the utilization of religious iconography has been a helpful tool in their spiritual life, in their prayer, and in their worship. So down here at our communion tables, we have this uh, icon of the Trinity, Um, that you're hopefully fairly familiar with now, by Andrei Rublev, a Russian iconographer. And in the language of iconography, icons aren't drawn or painted, they're written. They're meant to be visual theology. And so when we see maybe Christians of other traditions, Catholic or Orthodox or whatever, um, lighting candles and praying before icons, it kind of weirds us out as Protestants. Um, But the the truth is they're not praying to the icon or to the saints that are depicted in the icons. Icons aren't meant to be looked at. They're meant to be looked through. They're meant to serve as a window into something greater, into something grander. And so when we come to the table each week, we allow this icon of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoying each other in perfect communion and inviting us to pull up a chair, to participate in the life divine, to join this sacred dance. I want to show you another well-known icon. It's called Christ Pano Crater, or Christ Almighty. And at first glance, it may look like Jesus has sort of a lazy eye going on or something like that. Um, 
But if you look a little deeper, this icon is full of meaning that's intended to invite us uh, through a window of worship. See, on one side of his face, it's uh, on our left, it's a kind of a softer, gentler, uh, more approachable Christ. And on the other side of his face, on our right, is a little bit more of a stern and intense Christ. On, his, on our, our left, <laughs> his hand is extending his blessing. And on the other side, he's holding the book of the Gospels. And what the icon is meant to do is to, in a visual way, represent the dual nature of Christ. That in the person of Jesus, we have the bringing together of complete God, complete human, his divinity and his humanity. And even more than that, the mercy of God and the justice of God brought together the righteousness of God and the compassion of God brought together into one person. So somebody took the time to actually draw an imaginary line down the middle of this icon and reproduce it into two mirror images. And you see that the combination of these two faces uh, creates two totally different looking people, but in Christ they come together and form the God-man. Right, um, And so this icon and many others that we've been given throughout the church history, we can use them to celebrate and to contemplate the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the nature and character of God, the beauty of the good news of Christ's kingdom that's here and is still coming. And so icons aren't meant to be looked at. They're not idols. They're meant to be looked through as windows into greater and glorious truths about who God is and what God is like. And so the idea then is that what if sex were actually to serve as an icon, not an idol that's the object of our worship and affection and adoration, but what if it served as a window, not just to be looked at, but to be looked through in such a way that it gives us a picture of the glory of God. So in Ephesians chapter 5, the verse Pat read for us this morning, and you can flip there if you want, but we're just going to focus in on a couple of verses. Paul is in this conversation about marriage and about the various roles that husbands and wives are called to play within the household. And then he gets to this one place in verse 31 where he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So a couple observations. First of all, this language of great mystery. Uh, it's not mystery in the sense of we think of, for those of you that like true, true crime podcasts and unsolved mysteries and that kind of thing, like something that hasn't been or maybe never will be figured out. When the Bible uses the word mystery, it's talking about that same idea of an icon, a window that gives us a portrait of a greater reality of the glory of God. And oftentimes it's something that had been concealed for the saints of old, but in Christ and in light of the gospel, it's now been opened up. The window has been opened, and we get to see something about God that's always been true, but just hadn't been known or revealed. And so Paul says in this passage specifically that sex 
is a mystery. Not that we can never figure it out or understand it, but that it is something that is meant to display who God is and what God's like. And I think it's safe to say that as a culture, we have lost the mystery of sex. We've lost the mystery or the meaning that God embedded in it, into it and again have reduced sex to this idea of something done by two consenting adults to give each other pleasure. So that's the first observation. Sex is meant to be mysterious. And secondly, when Paul uses the phrase to become one, he is in the context of marriage talking about the physical act of sexual relations, right? And so the reason that this first part here is in quotes is because he's quoting from the book of Genesis chapter 2. And it's the same place that Jesus goes when he's asked questions by his listeners about marriage, about divorce, about sex, about adultery. When people want to know what does Jesus think about these topics, he goes back to Genesis 2 as well. And he pre presents God's design for sexuality based on the original design. And you see this over and over uh, throughout the scriptures. That Genesis 2 becomes a starting point for how we understand what sex was meant to be. And so this language of two becoming one flesh, as much as it may be a little uncomfortable for us, it is bodily language. It's physical language. Lots of times when Christians talk about marriage and sex and love, we spiritualize it. And we talk about it as being our soulmates or the, you know, joining of two souls or something like that. And, and there is something to that. But the Bible actually is a little bit less prudish than we are when it comes to the language it uses to describe sexual relations. The Bible is unabashedly physical in the words it uses to describe sex. And this picture of two bodies designed by God to come together in such a way that two become one. I think of the song from a few years ago by uh, the Postal Service, Such Great Heights. Ben Gibbard uh, writes, I love this line, the opening of the song. He goes, I think it's a sign that the freckles in our eyes are mere images, and when we kiss, they're perfectly aligned. And I have to speculate that God himself did make us into corresponding shapes like puzzle pieces from the clay. I actually think he's onto it. I'm thinking it's a sign, he says. The fact that our bodies fit together that the, way, the way that they do isn't unexpected or unexplainable or unnatural. It's so right. And maybe it is a sign. Maybe it is a window. Maybe it is an icon of something greater. So if sex is a sign, what's the sign pointing to? And I would argue this morning that sex is a sign that points us to the nature of salvation, which is union with Christ. Sex is a sign that points us to the nature of salvation, which we could define as union with Christ. So many of us, the first time that we were presented with the invitation of the gospel, that God loves us and sent his son to die for us, and that if by faith we receive Christ, we'll, uh, we'll live forever with him. The primary selling point or benefit of the gospel that was presented to us was oftentimes something like we should receive Jesus so that we can go to heaven when we die. 
So it was completely focused on some other afterlife up in the clouds. Or other times we're told that you should receive Jesus and become a Christian because he's going to fix all the problems in your life. In all the ways that you're struggling, all the ways that you're sad, all the ways that you're dealing with stuff, Jesus wants to come and give you your best life now, so to speak, right? Um, But the scriptures primarily present the nature of salvation, not as going away to some place called heaven when we die, and not as a promise that we're going to have an easy or simple life here and now, but we are promised that God is going to give himself to us in Christ. So there are many benefits to salvation. Because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, we get our sins forgiven, right? And we get a new name. We become a new creation. We're part of a new family. We're given a new mission. We're given a new eternity, a new identity. The list of benefits of salvation go on and on and on. But what we can't do is fail to understand that the true nature of salvation isn't all the gifts that Jesus gives us, but that Jesus himself is the gift. The gospel of salvation is that we get Christ. He isn't a means to all these other things, as good as they may be. He is the end. God has given himself to us in Jesus. And as odd as that may sound, upon our conversion, the language of the Bible is that Christ enters us and we are joined together with him. And so the idea of two becoming one flesh, before it applies to a husband and a wife, it applies to Christ and his church. John Calvin, the reformer, put it this way. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore, to share what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. For all that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. Hear what he's saying about this beautiful invitation to be united together with Christ. If all we look to Jesus for is this long list of benefits here in this life or in the life to come, then we're missing the true gift. If we are not made one flesh with him, if we are not united into one person with him, then Calvin's saying, then it's all useless. It doesn't mean anything. And so the theological term used to describe receiving Christ is union. And we're united or made one with Jesus. So union with Christ is a collective phrase that encompasses a number of terms, expressions, and images in the New Testament that refer to the oneness, the two becoming one that we have been given with Jesus. And so the most common phrase uh, is in Christ or Christ in us. The phrase in Christ occurs 164 times just in Paul's writings alone. And the way he talks about it is that every imaginable aspect of God's relationship towards us happens in the context of our union with Christ. 
that Jesus isn't just the mediator or the teacher or the savior or the rabbi, but somehow he is an active participant and recipient in the relationship of God that we are now included in. So I'll just read you a few. We have eternal life in Christ. We are justified in Christ. We are glorified in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We are called in Christ. We are made alive in Christ. We are made a new creation in Christ. We're adopted as children of God in Christ. I could go on and on and on, but for Paul and the other biblical authors, they can't emphasize enough that the nature of our salvation is that we are united into one person with Jesus. Don't just pass over that phrase when you read the scriptures. Notice it. And in fact, this notion is so embedded into Paul's thought that he doesn't use the term Christians to describe us. He simply refers to us as those who are in Christ or those in whom Christ dwells. This is literally what it means to be saved, to be a Christian. And I'm not saying that union with Christ is like some varsity-level spirituality that you can work yourself up to one day. I'm saying that if you have been saved, if you've received the gift of God's grace through faith, that you have received Jesus himself, you are already in Christ, whether you know that or not. This is the greatest gift of God's grace, and this is the nature of our salvation that we have been joined together with Jesus in a way that is so permanent and so powerful and so pervasive and intimate that the only word we have to use to describe that relationship is in. Not just with or next to or like or becoming like. Our relationship with Jesus has to be defined with this word in that we are in him and he is in us. And so I'll pause for a moment and just, if you haven't caught that good news yet, what that means is if you ever wonder, how does God feel about me? What does God think about me? What does God see when he looks at me? What does God think of me? The answer is, Well, what does God think about Jesus? How does the Father feel about his Son? What does God see when he looks at Christ? And whatever the answer to those questions are, it's the exact same when it comes to asking how God sees us. Because the love, the acceptance, the affirmation, the joy, and the pleasure that the Father takes in his Son. We are in his Son, and his Son is in us. The two have become one flesh. Jesus has given us his name, and he's invited us to share in his very life, in his very identity, so everything that is true about him is now true about us. Is that good news? That is good news. So, if that's the nature of our salvation, that we have been united with Christ in such a way that he is in us and we are in him, when we come back to Ephesians chapter 5, 
we start to understand this mystery that Paul is talking about. That when two become one flesh, it's not just for their mutual pleasure, but it's a window or a sign of something greater. I want to think about it through the lenses of generosity and hospitality. How the physical act of sexual union is an icon of what God is like. So what does sex reveal, the physical act of sex reveal about who God is? Let's think about it. By the way, it's going to be a little squirmy here, just so you know, but I really think this is what the Bible is talking about. What is generosity? Generosity is expressed through the act of giving. Giving your money, giving your time, giving your energy. But the ultimate act or expression of generosity is the, very, the giving of your very self. Not just giving your stuff, but giving you. And in fact, in our most succinct gospel verse that most of us know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. To love is not just to give stuff, it's to give yourself. And so in marriage, in the act of, of sexual union, there's a specific design by which God invites the husband to participate in an act of generosity through physically giving himself to his beloved. And on the other side, this idea of hospitality. What's hospitality? It's the act of making room, of creating space to welcome and to receive another. So what more intimate and loving expression of hospitality could there be than a wife welcoming the life of the beloved. So both the husband and the wife in God's design are invited into this blessed union, not just for their pleasure, but for the purpose of displaying the love and likeness of God to one another. Because the gospel shows us that our God is both generous and hospitable, He's a God who has given himself to us in Christ, and he's a God who has received us, made room for us, welcomed us into his very life. And so when we see sex as an icon of the character and nature and glory of God, specifically through the lenses of generosity and hospitality, we start to understand why the misuse, the abuse, the perversion and distortion of sex is, are so tragic. So let's look at two extreme examples of how we distort God's image or God's design for sex. Let's talk about rape and prostitution. If sex is about generosity, then what is rape? Rape is an inversion of generosity. It's taking something that was designed for self-giving and makes it about self-taking. Rape barges into the home uninvited and takes what it wants 
and leaves the other devastated and empty. Rape takes God's beautiful design for sex as an icon of his generosity and it flips it upside down into something perverse and grotesque. On the other side, if sex is about hospitality, then what is prostitution? Prostitution is an inversion of hospitality. It welcomes the guest, but charges admission. It rents out its space for a fee and turns the holy sanctuary into a transit station for someone who's passing through. So prostitution takes God's beautiful design for sex as an icon of hospitality and flips it into something that's cheap and hollow. Okay, so those are extreme examples. But I would argue that this stuff shows up in more subtle ways too, both within marriages and in relationships outside of marriage. So let's talk about it for, how we, how we doing? <laughs> you guys all right? I'm having fun, I, but I, I'm having a hard time reading you today. So I'm just going to keep talking. What are other ways we can invert God's design that's for sex that's beautiful and iconographic. Within marriage, husbands are prone to invert self-giving generosity into self-gratification. Oftentimes this would feel the wife, leave the wife feeling used rather than loved. Looks like using sex as a means to an end rather than expression of Christ-like self-giving. So husbands, I'm convinced that when Jesus said it's better to give than to receive, it's never more true than in the bedroom. So there's a difference between wanting sex and wanting your wife. And if sex is an icon into the heart of God, he doesn't just want our stuff, he wants us. And on the other side, wives would be prone to invert hospitality and become unwelcoming or inhospitable to their husbands, unwilling to create space and to receive the life of their beloved. Now, these are generalizations. There will always be exceptions to this within personalities, within relationships, within marriages. But as a pastor, I've noticed general trends in the couples I've walked with and the men and women I've talked to that oftentimes these patterns emerge pretty regularly. And so these inversions show up within marriage. But then there's all different kinds of ways that we can miss God's design and shatter the icon outside of marriage too, right? So think about something like divorce. The tragedy of divorce is that it shatters union. If a sex is meant to be an ex, a, a, a window into the nature of salvation, our union with Christ, divorce shatters that union. In Matthew 19, Jesus says that what God has brought together, no man should separate. Why? Because that bringing together, that union, is supposed to be an icon of our union with Christ that is permanent, not temporary, not something we have to worry and wonder if we're going to lose it one day. 
Now, I'm not saying there aren't, unfortunately, cases where divorce is inevitable or unnecessary, and Jesus does talk about that. But even in those cases, and I'm willing to bet even those of you that have been through this, nobody would raise your hand and say, yeah, divorce is awesome. I really recommend it. No. It's one of the most tragic and devastating things that we go through as humans. And part of the reason why is because it shatters the icon. We get to today's command, which is thou shalt not commit adultery. What's the tragedy of adultery? Well, it's that it betrays the covenant faithful love that our marriages are supposed to be characterized, characterized by. If marriage is a picture of Christ and his church in a loving, committed, permanent union relationship, then for one or both of those members of the marriage to step outside of the marriage in relations, the betraying the faithful love of God. So all throughout the scriptures, you'll find this imagery used that God often, even before Christ in the church, he refers to himself as the bridegroom to his people. And when Israel in the Old Testament disobeys God, um, opposes God, ignores God, runs away from God. When they sin, it's, God doesn't talk about it just as if they were breaking his rules. God talks about it as if they're breaking his heart. Idolatry, the worship of other gods, the uniting of ourselves to other gods is imaged in the scriptures as adultery. That God exposes his people's unfaithfulness to him in covenant relationship. But what do we see in God? We see a faithful husband and even when we are faithless, he remains faithful that when we step out on him and step away from him and we unite ourselves to other gods, and for us, it's not statues or whatever. For us, those other gods are pleasure or power, comfort or convenience, money or possessions or appearance or status or whatever those other gods we go chasing. It's not just that we're breaking God's rules. It's that we're breaking the covenant that he's made with us. We're being unfaithful. And so the reason God commands his people against adultery is because he sees us as his bride. He sees us as his covenant community. And he set up this institution of marriage to be a picture of that covenant to one another, to our community, and to the world, a picture of his faithful covenantal love. Now, I could go on and on and on about all the different ways that culturally uh, and throughout history we've perverted or inverted the icon. Um, let me just hit a couple more. You guys seem like you're all right. Let's talk about premarital sex. The word in the Bible would be fornication. If adultery violates covenant, premarital sex refuses to enter covenant. It says, 
I, I want your body, but I don't want you. It unites bodies without uniting lives. Which again is not the picture of the love of God that's been shown to us in Christ. He comes to us, he commits himself to us before he unites himself with us. Now here's what's interesting. Later on, uh, Rick did this last week as well in the talk about murder. He looks at how Jesus takes some of these Ten Commandments and then kind of recontextualizes or explains them within the Sermon on the Mount. And so if we go to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So last week he said, yeah, you've heard it said don't commit murder. And most of us can go check. I've never done that. But he says, I tell you anyone who has hatred in his heart towards a brother has already committed murder. Because murder is simply the fruit of the tree that grows from the roots of hatred. And Jesus is saying the exact same thing about adultery. Adultery itself isn't in and of itself the problem. It is the symptom or it is the fruit that grows on the tree whose roots are this thing called lust. And there's some of us today that it didn't take long at all for us to identify ourselves in the ways that we've perverted or inverted God's design for sex. And if you haven't been convicted yet, then good luck with this one. Because if, even if you haven't committed adultery in the way that we think of, Jesus is saying the roots of lust are planted within the soil of your heart. And that's what he's most interested in, not just in our uh, moral conformity to his vision for sex, not just that we obey the rules and say, technically, I didn't cross that line, right? Jesus is interested in remaking his image in us from the inside out, not just pruning the fruit of adultery and fornication and divorce and whatever else from our branches, but actually going into our hearts and dealing with the roots of lust. And so on one hand, this is bad news, because who in this room can claim sexual purity? Who can claim that you've perfectly kept God's design for sex intact in your own life? I know I can't. And so, in that sense, we all stand condemned and convicted by the law of God. But you guys know that's not the end of the story. That we have a God who, in his great mercy and compassion and kindness, has come to us and, in Jesus, has lived the life we were meant to live. And when we look at Jesus, what we see is literally the only human being who's ever walked the earth who perfectly kept the icon of sex intact. The only human who has ever <clears throat> holistically displayed the glory of God through his own sexuality. Now, what you might notice is Jesus wasn't married. Jesus didn't have sex. So any of you guys that are sitting here today, 
as unmarried folks, as singles, you've got a pretty good role model. And in Christ, we see that he perfectly keeps this biblical sexual ethic. And what makes that even more impressive is what the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4. He says, For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. He has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So temptations, attractions, thoughts, in every way as we are, and yet he does not sin. So the truth is that we have a Jesus who is sexually pure and perfectly embodied God's design for sexuality, but it wasn't easy for him. He was tempted just like all of us are. He was prone to wander, prone towards attractions, prone to step out, but he never sins. And so here's the good news, is that for those of us that carry around sexual guilt, sexual shame, sexual brokenness, based on our family of origin, based on our own past, based on our own decisions, relationships, things that we've done, things that have been done to us, Jesus knows how you feel. And he doesn't hold those sins against you. And if you want to know today, how does God feel about me as somebody who's lived a life marked by sexual regret and brokenness? The answer is, how does God feel about Jesus? We good. Why don't you stand? Will you pray with me as we prepare to worship in response? Father, this is a heavy topic. One that for many of us is painful and brings up feelings of guilt or shame. And Holy Spirit, I want to invite your presence to come and to meet us here this morning. In light of your word, in light of your gospel, in light of the good news that you have united us, Father, with your Son, God, I pray that you would come and you would save us, that you would liberate us, that you would free us from our broken sexuality, from our broken hearts, from our broken pasts, and from our broken presence. God, I pray for those of us in this room that are deeply struggling today with lust, with sexuality, with porn, with temptations. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we need your spirit to empower us. We can't do this on our own. And so we surrender our lives to you. We give ourselves to you again. And we pray that in us this morning, you would find a hospitable bride, a church ready to receive your very life, 
and to be filled with your spirit, with your power. That we may live in this world not as perfect, but as redeemed people that display your image and your likeness and your glory to one another, to our city, and to all of creation. In Jesus' name we pray.